pierced hands. Let's pray. Lord, whatever storm we might find ourselves in, may we trust you to be the captain of the ship. And may we not worry for those that will come, even though we know they will come. But may we trust you as we should desire our children to trust us that we will be faithful and provide. Now, Lord, bless us as we open the word. May our hearts be open. And may the message of heaven be the message that renews, redeems, restores, and lifts us up into your presence. In Jesus' name we ask this. Amen. I have a challenging task this morning, and the devil has attempted to keep me from it. And what will make this task so challenging is that this message will challenge some in ways they would rather not be challenged. Last Sabbath, as I was preaching in the Garden of Gethsemane, I felt that the Lord himself was giving me a larger understanding of the glory of the plan of salvation. And I want you to know something, that while Jesus was there suffering in Gethsemane with his visage changed more than the visage of any man, wrestling with the forces of darkness, his father withdrawing from him, paying the price. You need to understand, in the Old Testament sanctuary, the lamb was not called to torture. The lamb was not called to excruciating, agonizing, on and on suffering. What I want you to realize is that when Christ came out of the garden, he had come all but to the gates of eternal death, the second death. He had paid that price, and yet he had not died. And the propitiation of our sin was going to be an exposition of God's love that went far beyond what any human being or angelic host could imagine. Jesus would walk out of the garden as a victor into the hands of his creation. Now, if there's something... I, I want to do today, so there is no question in your mind of what the purpose of this message is, is I want to bring every human being face to face with the depravity that lives within us. I want to unmask the dishonesty that is naturally ours. And as Isaiah says in Isaiah 53, verse 3, we hid or hide, as it were, our faces from him. The scripture reading we just heard was an effectively the same experience. Jesus is proclaimed as the Lord and Messiah in one breath, and he is banished from the concept of suffering in the next breaths of his good friend and fellow uh, laborer, Peter. What I want you to see is that all of the disciples hid, as it were, their faces from the concept of any religion that brought any measure of suffering, duress, or discomfort, any lack of glory. And so this morning, lest you be confused, I'm going to bring together the priceless free gift of heaven and the high cost of discipleship so that nobody is confused about how this works. Because if you receive the glorious free gift of Jesus, you are set free to a human existence very few people ever understand, know, or experience. But if you live in the confused confluence, the coming together of the church and the world, and you want the affirmation that comes constantly through so many pulpits without the call to the cross, you are in a status of perpetual misery. You are missing out on freedom. You cannot be fruitful. And this is indeed where we're at. And I should tell you that I believe beyond the shadow of a doubt 
that I am in hand-to-hand combat with Lucifer this morning. So let me begin this way by reading from the last few paragraphs of Charles Spurgeon's sermon on the offense of the cross. He says, if the cross is an offense and always was an offense, and of course this is what Galatians 5.11 says, Paul says that the offense of the cross is not going to be lost. And of course he's talking to them about circumcision. And he has to remind them that their new, their new arrangement with religion, which is the old way of trying to get it on their own, isn't going to work. What is the reason why so many professed Christians go on so easily from January to December and never have any trouble about it? That is the cross. Old John Barrage said, if you do not preach the gospel, you may sleep soundly enough. But if you preach it faithfully, you will hardly have a sound place in your skin, for you will soon have enemies enough assailing you. How is it that we never hear any of the slander against a great many ministers? Everything goes easily and comfortably with them. Nobody's ever offended with their preaching. But people go out of their chapel doors and say, what a nice sermon. It was just the thing for everybody, and nobody could be offended. They do not preach the gospel fully, or they would be sure to offend some people. Suppose that somebody says to me, do you know that Mrs. So-and-so was so fearfully offended with your last sermon? That's no trouble to me, Spurgeon will write, if I know that I preach the truth. A celebrated preacher was once told that he had pleased all his hearers. Ah, said he, there's another sermon lost. The most effective sermons are those which make opposers of the gospel bite their lips and gnash their teeth. That preaching which is worth little Howlin' Hill used to say cannot make the devil roar. He preaches but very little truth who does not set the old lion roaring against him. Depend upon it. Satan does not like the gospel any better than he did. And the world does not like the gospel any better than it did. And if there is not nowadays so much persecution and hatred as there used to be, it's because men do not proclaim the plain, simple truth as their forefathers did. People go to hear nice velvet-tongued preachers. They like the minister to prophesy smooth things unto them. I won't go to hear Mrs. So, Mr. So-and-so says one, for he will sure, be sure to offend me. Now, what is the reason for this? It is because he preaches the whole gospel, the pure truth, but do men imagine that we want to offend them? Now he's talking as a preacher. Nay, God knows that the hard things that we often say cause us more pain than they cause the hearers. But it's a good thing when we care little for the opinion of men and when we have learned to live above the world. Once let ministers faithfully proclaim the plain, simple gospel, and we shall soon hear the laughter, the scorn, and the jeers. It was an ill day when the sons of God made affinity with the daughters of men, and it will be an ill day for the church of Christ when the world speaks well of it and everybody commends it. The sect that is most often spoken against is usually the sect where Christ is most dwelling. But the sect that is lapped up in plenty and dandled on the knees of honor is usually the most corrupt. Preach the gospel boldly, steadfastly, Steadily, strongly, out and out, and you will not be long without hearing something about the offense of the cross. And if you have your bulletins, look at the quote there with me. I want you to make sure that we have it on the word of inspiration. Writing in 1900, the author says, it is because the cross is shunned by the Christian world that they are so weak and inefficient. Now, 
If I were to stop right there, you'd have a lot to think about. Because probably most of us would love to hear about the cross, at least any comfort we could get from it. But that part of the cross that Peter shunned and Judas shunned and the other ten shunned, that's the part of the cross that I'm going to look at today. Because that's the efficacy, that's the power, that's the healing touch. You see, we are by and large as a people completely blind to the depravity of our soul and completely dishonest with our personal needs. And this is where there is the offense of the cross. She goes on to write, the earnest, constant view of the sufferings and the death of God's dear Son is the only means by which we may conceive of the depth of His love and the value of even one soul for whom He paid the infinite price. Remove the cross from the Christian and it's like blotting out the sun which illumines the day and dropping the stars and the moon out of the firmament of the heavens. Now, I want you to know there is a tension in the cross, so absolutely amazing a gift, and yet this relationship we enter into Christ where the divine salve, the balm in Gilead, is applied to the soul so costly. Take your Bibles and go back, if you would, to Matthew 16, where our Scripture reading was read. And I want you to see the juxtaposition, the putting together of two things. Matthew chapter 16 Jesus has just confronted Peter, and he has said, Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. How could these two things come together? The proclamation of Jesus as the Messiah and the rebuke as an instrumentality of the evil one's messaging. But I want you to see where Jesus takes the conversation after this, verse 24. He says, Thus Jesus says to his disciples, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself, oh, now we're there, and take up his cross and follow me. Would we dare accuse Jesus of being a legalist, a righteousness by work savior? Not hardly. So there must be something about going where he's gone, walking where he walks, doing as he did, living as he lived, that actually takes the gift and makes it transforming. You see, it's Jesus himself who says in verse 25, whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. Jesus will go on to tell us that this gospel, this high cost, tremendously free gift will put father and son at variance with each other. It will bring a sword, not that it is the sword. And strangely, Spurgeon will talk about the image of the dove as the bird on the staff of the army of Christ, and yet nothing elicits stronger offense than the proclamation of the cross. So why is that? So should we somehow extricate the cross from the lives of our children, the lives of our members, our own personal lives, or is it the very bearing of that cross that makes us strong and efficient instead of weak and inefficient? This is what God has called me to talk with you about today, at the pangs of overcoming a fair amount of personal suffering. And so this morning, I need you to understand that we, like Peter, don't want to see the cross. And by the way, Jesus had not made mention of it, but he had said he was going to die. But when Peter rejects the concept of death to the Lamb of God, Jesus goes farther and says, it won't just be death. 
you will carry what I will carry, which is the cross. Take your Bibles, if you would, and turn back to the book of Numbers. Numbers chapter 21. It's from this story that we can begin to see the reason for the offense. Why would anybody reject the invitation to look and to live? The Israelites were not far from the promised land. All through their almost 40 years of sojourning, God had suppressed the enemies of the desert so that they were not inflicting pain on the children of Israel. But when we get close to the borders, there's another round of complaining against God and against his leader, and God withdraws some of his protection. Verse 6 of Numbers 21, it says, The Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people that, so that many of the people of Israel died. So the people came to Moses and said, We've sinned because we've spoken against the Lord, and you intercede with the Lord that he may reprove the serpents from us, remove them. And Moses interceded for the people. Then the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent, set it on a standard, and it shall come about that everyone who is bitten, when he looks at it, he will live. The question that has always resided in the bosom of this man is why wouldn't anybody look? And yet we find in the experience of Matthew 16, we find in Peter's refusal to let Jesus say to him, Peter, you're going to deny me. There's, there's a good little bit of self left in you. We hear in the rebuke of Judas at the feast at Lazarus' house when he's started the rumor about Mary that she doesn't know how to manage money and she's wasted it on Jesus. And Jesus looks at him and he says, leave her alone. We find this offense looming large, not so hidden in our heart when we realize what we really don't like about the cross is that the cross lays bare our soul. The cross shows us how the application of the gospel gift applied through the cross-carrying discipleship experience actually calls a measure of honesty and suffering in our journey. And of course, you recall when Nicodemus slinked out of the city of Jerusalem in the middle of the night because his professional pride could not be wounded by his attachment to the controversial preacher from Galilee, and he slips into the Mount of Olives, probably the Garden of Gethsemane, and he talks with Jesus. Jesus says, unless you're born again, unless, well, he says, the Son of Man is lifted up. And Nicodemus is wondering but wrapped up in this message is the same reality that made refusal to look the same refusal we have. And that is the unrepentant heart, simply desiring deliverance but not true renewal, rejects the idea that I should have to look at the very thing that caused me pain. And Nicodemus is sent away on a three-year odyssey of thinking about what this means. Unless the Son of Man, or when the Son of Man is lifted up, he'll draw all men. This morning, what... I need you to understand is that I nor you are any different from the prophet Isaiah or the apostle Peter who wants to hide our face from the discipleship journey which is the carrying of the cross. We are not salvation by works proclaimers, believers, or enactors. But if Christ himself says, if any man would come after me, let him take up his cross and follow me, this must be the application of the gospel but we've extracted it. We're all right with lazy children who don't know how to serve. 
We're all right with proud people who wear their clothes or their money lobbing from their earlobes or hanging on their hips. We're okay with those who flash around in their wealth in other ways, and we don't mind those who are smarter than everybody else and can tell us what to do as long as they don't tell us about our sins. You see, looking into the heart of a human being was never a complimentary moment, and it's perhaps even less complimentary for the human heart that's being examined. I want you to take your Bibles and turn to the book of Galatians chapter 3. I want to unravel a very complex and controversial text that talks about Jesus preaching to the spirits in hell. Galatians chapter 3, and I, I want us to look at verses 18 and 19. In the book of Galatians, or actually I want to go to 1 Peter, go a little farther back, 1 Peter 3, and I want to look at verses 18 and 19. 1 Peter chapter 3. This is what it says. Little book, back towards Revelation, 1 Peter 3. For Christ also died for sins once and for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God. Now listen, friends, the chasm that separated us from heaven was beyond the reach of anyone except God himself. And yet Jesus comes down and bridges that gap. For Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he also went and made proclamation to the spirits now in prison. And commentators have argued and wondered about that on and on. This morning, I think I can clear the mystery up. Because you see, walking out of the precincts of the mountain to the east, we call Olivet, to the garden, we call Gethsemane, came a victorious God, separated from the presence of his Father, suffocated by the weight of our sin, strangled by the enemy of all righteousness. Jesus fell dying to the ground in that garden, and had it not been for Gabriel, he would have been destroyed by our sins right there. But Christ, as it were, resurrects him and leads him into a journey that goes much farther than any human being would have ever imagined much deeper and darker than could be collectively or individually in the heart of the human or the human race. Jesus is taken from there to Annas and Caiaphas. He goes from there to Pilate. He goes to Herod. He comes back to Pilate. In the midst of all, a bag is put on his head. He is struck in the face and told to prophesy. He is spat upon. A crown of thorns is imprinted into his holy, gentle brow. Jesus, the one who was pure, holy, and undefiled, Jesus finally finds himself carrying his cross. He makes it all the way out of the sheep gate, and there he stumbles. And when he stumbles, there is a man from Africa, a named Simon of Cyrene, who is so aghast at the demonic spirit of this crowd and the suffering of what is clearly an innocent man that he is noticed by the Romans, and Christ is laying on the ground. And the Romans grab him. And he carries that cross from there to Golgotha. 
There's a reason when Jesus returns, Mount Olivet splits open wide. It's because this is where the holy sacrifice was made in one sense, but there's a reason it's not Jerusalem, and that's because the closest thing to hell on earth is that little hill called Golgotha, and Christ is thrown down on a ground, pierced, and that, that cross is raised up and dropped into its socket, and there for the next six hours, our Christ will suffer to breathe. He will suffer of thirst. He will suffer the abandonment and the loneliness of what our sins do as we turn our faces from him. He will suffer the absence of an awareness of how near his father is and the evil angels will close in on Jesus and he will labor to live and finally cry out, it is finished and die. I want you to understand something. Christ was not compelled to be the lamb flayed out on a cross, suffering in the hot sun, mocked and derided. Those lambs in the sanctuary had their throats slit and they were gone in a moment. Jesus comes out of the garden, passes through the precincts of the politician and the priest, and he ends up at Golgotha, where, as the songwriters say, that e and he turns that evil-inspired instrument of hell into our most greatest good. The darkness, they say, was deep on that hill. For you see, indeed, hell was Hell was gathered there about our living Christ, and the sermon that was being preached by the God of heaven was unveiling the eyes of all the angels and any honest human being, and I believe at some measure it was the indisputable witness even to the lost third of those fallen angels that this is truly Lord of everything. The suffering that Jesus goes to on the cross is not called for in the making of amends or the bridging of the gap, but that suffering declares how much he loves us. He marches into the end zone of evil and snatches, as it were, the trophy of victory and lays down his life so that no sinner could ever imagine they were worse than the animated angst of evil flowing through the hearts and the hands of people. You see, friends, Calvary is an expose to the human race of how dark and dirty their human hearts are. Why should Jesus choose the cross? Because the cross will perpetually, powerfully assure us that love went farther than it should ever have to, and it's there to reach us. But the journey with the cross is the journey to be the, like the Christ. So nobody wants us. Somebody texted me after the, last, the first sermon and said, Pastor, you went from preaching to meddling. I'd use some illustrations in that sermon that I think caused people to get up and walk out. So it's wrong, huh? It's wrong for me to talk about your diet or your dress. It's wrong for me to talk about your entertainment or your money and the wasting of it. It's wrong for me to talk about our ap apathy and mediocrity as a group of people supposedly with an apocalyptic message that's to light the whole world up and reach, reach the reachable. These things are wrong in the modern milieu of things because we are the frog in the kettle and a political correct religion will never convert a soul. And while it's not my job or yours to run around laying you down like I'm the Holy Spirit, in this moment when the message is being preached, either Pastor Ramoni's prayer is answered and the Spirit is here, or it's not. Either God can do something or he can't. Either it's real or it's phony. 
Either we're like Peter or we're different. Either we hide our faces from the things we don't want to see like Nicodemus, or we don't. And maybe the offense of the cross is the mismanaged message that somehow His grace is always enough to just cover up our messes, but it's not the message that with His cross on our shoulder, which is light, and the freedom which is in our heart, which is indescribable, actually takes us from the realm of perpetual misery and puts us in the land of freedom and undeniable witness to the power of God's love to transform a soul. You see, friends, modern theology and modern churches have made it almost certain that you will be not called to put a cross on your shoulder. Listen to this. I asked the meaning of the shaking I had seen, and I was shown that it would be caused by the straight testimony called forth by the counsel of the true witness of the Laodiceans. Now, we're going to go there. Take your Bibles right now and turn to the book of Revelation chapter 3. I'm not done with the quote, but we're going to go there. If the shaking is actually caused by the straight testimony of the true witness, we better know what's going on here because it might just be a moment not unlike Golgotha. Revelation chapter 3, verse 14. It says, To the angel of the church in Laodicea write, The Amen, the faithful and the true witness, the beginning of creation. The creation of God says this, I know your deeds. Parenthetically, it might say it doesn't matter what your profession is. You're neither cold nor hot, and I wish that you were. So because you're lukewarm and neither hot or cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Now let's get a little clarification as to why. Because you say, I'm rich and I don't have those problems. I've become wealthy and I don't need anybody to point out where I'm wrong. And you do not know that you're wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. I advise of you, buy from me gold refined in the fire. Sounds like a hot place. So that you may become rich with white garments, that you may clothe yourself, and that the shame of your nakedness might not be revealed. And I salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love, I reprove and I discipline. Therefore, be zealous and repent." Behold, I stand at the door and knock, and if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him, and I will dine with him and he with me. What a great privilege. 21, he who overcomes, I will grant to sit down with me on my throne as I also overcame. I want you to think of the cross. I want you to realize in the beginning of this verses, he says, I am the amen. I am the faithful, the witness. What Jesus started, the devil tried to dissuade him from doing. He tried to tempt him out of it in the wilderness in Matthew chapter 4, and he tried to oppress him out of it in the garden of Gethsemane. But Jesus was faithful to his calling and what he and the Father had agreed upon before the foundation of this world, knowing that free choice would cost an expose of the heart of God that would be more costly than all of eternity could reveal to those who would choose to study it, they said, we will do it. We will make man in our image. 
And I want to assure you, while Jesus is abandoned, mocked, derided, suffering, struggling to live on the cross, he is fulfilling the amen witness. So when you read Revelation chapter 3, verse 14 and onward, you need to know something. The Jesus who overcame all those evil-inspired people of hell is saying to us, I am more than sufficient to make you a conqueror over the things that dog you, the besetting sins that chase you. But there's a problem. I can't deal with your dishonesty. I sit and I talk with people. I just want you to know I make a really big salary so that people can hate my guts sometimes. No, I work for love. I work for the same God who went to the cross while we were all hating his guts. How dare you display the bankruptcy of religion? How dare you show the perfidy and the falsehood of your apostles? How dare you call out Judas for being stingy-hearted little greedy man while a woman is pouring out 300 days' worth of wages on my feet? How dare you? And I'm here to tell you there had to be a cross because the human race had to face itself. And we still have to face ourselves. There is no deliverance without a cross. And while it is categorically and completely a gift from heaven, the relationship with Christ is a discipling relationship. And he walks us sometimes through the fire where we get the gold that makes us reflect his character. I want to read a little more. I'm going to read that sentence again. I asked the meaning of the shaking. The shaking, it's coming, friends. There's a shaking coming, and this shaking will be different than the shaking at the cross. Because when Peter saw what he did, he raced out of the courtyard of Annas and Caiaphas. He raced back to Gethsemane, and he cried, and he cried, and he, he was crushed. It was true. Jesus was right, and he was wrong. Judas, of course, took his own life. His heart had shriveled slowly over a period of three years. And I'm telling you, friends, there's a lot of Seventh-day Adventist Christians whose hearts have been shriveling because they rejected the cross. They hid, as it were, their faces from the sacrifice. The dying to death of self. Yes, this cross calls us to be honest with ourselves and to look inside. And Jesus at the very end comes down and testifies, as it were, indisputably through the power of the Holy Spirit. I believe it'll be through parents and spouses and preachers and teachers and friends. But this final true witness bears the, the marks of the Holy Spirit in such a way that it's the last moment to decide, am I going to stop and be honest and say, you know what? My version of Christianity has had the cross extricated from it. It's been removed. And all those difficult moments when if I listened to the Holy Spirit, I would have carried the cross and said, you know what? I don't really want to do this, but I need it. The shaking is a result of the straight testimony called for by the counsel of the true witness to the Laodiceans. This will have its effect upon the heart of the receiver, and it will lead some to exalt the standard and pour forth the straight truth. Some will not bear this testimony. They will rise up. It doesn't say and walk away. It says they will rise up against it. And this is what will cause a shaking among God's people. 
And you thought it was persecution from the outside. And you thought it was people that were afraid they weren't going to be able to buy or sell. No. It'll be people who have slowly blocked the messaging of the Holy Spirit about carrying the cross, who have guarded their pride and their plush lifestyles to where they were never inconvenienced to suffer in the name of love for Jesus or for someone else, and they will come to a place where the last message will create a stronger reaction than the first message, but it'll be the final reaction, and they will of their own volition say, if that's what Jesus is all about, then it's not for me. And by the way, that's what happened to Jesus. They found him the day after feeding the 5,000, and he said, you're not here to receive anything but more loaves and fishes. And he went on to say, lest you think he didn't practice what he preaches in Revelation 3, he said, unless you eat the flesh of man and drink his son of man and drink his blood, you have no part in me. And the Bible says they knew this was a hard saying. And masses walked away from him. Masses. Yes, Peter, you're going to deny me. No, I'm not. No, I'm not. And all the rest of them are bobbing their heads. You see, friends, there comes a time when, according to the book of Philippians, chapter 2, verse 10, I believe it is, when it's all done, the new, the new Jerusalem's come down before the fire falls. The risen Christ is the captain of the host. And every knee will bow and every tongue will proclaim that Jesus Christ is Lord. And the preaching that was done to the, prison, the spirits in prison was done on the cross. But if you think our spirit is any more naturally free from accepting the message of the depravity of our heart, think again. One of you sent me a letter that was slid under my door. If I could have that picture come up. And I didn't get a chance to read the letter right away. It took me a day or two before I could actually look at it. I appreciate it very much. Thank you. This is a painting by Rembrandt called The Raising of the Cross. I want you to notice that most of it is not easy to see. You can see Jesus, and you can see Rembrandt as he drew himself into the picture in his painter's clothes. He has a hold of the cross, and he is lifting it up to stick it in his socket. Do you think he got it? It's not just that you're mean like they were. It's not that you're just human like they were. It's like our closing hymn says, the very first hymn that Wesley wrote after he was converted when he said, me who him to death pursued. Many of you have never been chased by your enemies. But I grew up with kind of a pre-conversion preacher's problem of saying too much. And I had the problem of my prophetic mother and the combination was kind of twisted, but Whenever I dealt with bullies, I just, it, it bothered me enough to say something, but occasionally they'd do what bullies do, and they'd, they'd chase me. Did you hear me say they would chase me? If you've ever had to run for your life, 
but they chase you until they catch you. And I still remember the day with my back up against the chain link fence at the intersection of Cahokia and Joliet Road, just waiting for them to come in and take care of the rest of their business. Yes, I to him, I to his death pursued him. How do you do it? You do it in the denial. How do I do it? You do it in the denial of the Spirit's voice. So I can't talk to you about what you watch? No one can talk to you about how you dress? Nobody can talk to you about the hardness of your heart, the arrogance of your person, the love affair with the world that's going on? Nobody can talk to you, but you need to feel good about God. That's a religion where the cross has been extricated. And you know what it is? It's a perfect setup. The political correctness of our society unconfronted by the prophetic voice of the church because the church doesn't even confront itself. So how can it confront the world? So we've got our own version of political correctness which is like the blind leading the blind and someday God's going to pour out his spirit and whether it's parents or teachers or pastors or whatever it is, the true witness is going to speak again just like John carrying the words in Revelation chapter 3 and it's going to be the last time because somebody's going to let the hardness of their heart lock the door and say, you're not welcome, Jesus. The masses of the church, actually she says whole congregations will go out and whole tribes will come in. Oh, this is an inconvenient religion. Oh, what a glorious Savior. I want to tell you, when I became a Christian, I turned my back on that rock and roll music I like to listen to and it was played in my home. I turned my back on eating whatever I want whenever I wanted it. I turned my back on sports on Saturday. I turned my back on a lot of things and God nerved me to stand up for what was right, but I was free, glory, hallelujah. And a lot of people forget what James says, pure and undefiled religion is this, to take care of the widows of the orphans in their distress and to keep oneself unspotted from the world. You see, friends, the cross is the greatest protection to the liberty of the soul that has ever, can ever, and will ever exist. And when you say no, seeing you see not and hearing you hear not, we're no different than the Pharisees or the rabble or the apostles. When I looked at this picture and I read the letter, that is a soul humbled by the love of God. Rembrandt got it. The devil's hoping that your path forward to the final precipice will be without the prophetic interruptions of anybody that says to you, actually, that is wrong. And I'll show you why. And I'm going to say something I said in the first sermon. Either the value system of this church as to how we live. And by the way, I, I could spend the next half hour telling you stories, some of which I told in the first service, which I've not told here. But I could spend the next half hour or more talking to you about where the real testing truth is. It's not the state of the dead, and it's not the Sabbath. It's the truth about me. It's how my life lives out my profession 
And it's not righteousness by works. It is a glorious surrender of my human pride and self-will to the principles of freedom. It is a cross on my shoulder and God's peace in my heart. It's not legalism when you've been to the cross. It is not. Nothing is too dear for Jesus, who in effect died in the garden only to die at the hands of his creation. And the reason we have to have a cross is not just so that blood can be shed because blood was dripping to the ground in Gethsemane. It's to show the human race what they really are. And I couldn't leave you there. It's to show the heart of God who would endure that to say, Nobody's beyond my reach. I leave you with this thought. When Judas came to connect the mob with Jesus, the heart of Christ was so free that even though a trusted disciple who would have become an apostle got in his personal space and reached out to put his arms around Jesus and put his lips up here. I believe beyond the shadow of a doubt, Jesus reached out to him as well. And while their faces were right next to each other, Jesus said, Judas, you wouldn't betray me with a kiss, would you? But it was too late. The shaking of Judas' life was done. Jesus had wounded him in Simon's house when he said, leave her alone. And Judas left stung by the reproof of Jesus. Yes, you can live your life where nobody will ever tell you you're wrong. You can go find a thousand preachers to tell you why you ought not to ever feel guilty about anything. It's because the cross is shunned by the Christian world that they, the Christian world, are so weak and inefficient. I want to tell you something. You can only see who you really are against the backdrop of the amazing love of Christ. The unconverted man cannot admit what he is. The unconverted woman cannot see who they really are. The unconverted teenager cannot admit. But there's nails in the hand of the most innocent person that ever lived. There's agonizing cries of the creator who put the lion and the lamb together. Nobody will speak up for Jesus until finally a thief on a cross says, stop talking to him like that. The preaching of Jesus not only verified to the lost that he was truly God, it broke through to one who was not quite as lost as they thought. Wesley tried it his own way. 
He even went to America and tried to be a missionary, but he wasn't converted. Finally, his chains fell off. His soul was set free. But I want you to see in that first line, me who him to death pursued. I want you to see Rembrandt because Jesus wants you to know how much he loves you so you can see yourself. And let him be the Lord of all things. I'm appealing to you this morning. God's spirit was prayed over to be here. He's calling all of us to a full and complete surrender of our lives. It's not legalism to be peculiar and different for Jesus, to not cuss and swear and bow down at the shrines of entertainment that are out there and listen to the worldly music that you can identify with but only deepens the darkness in your heart. It's not God's will that we should wear our pride or our riches on our body. It's not God's will that the world can't see an easy, clear, distinct difference not only in our person but in our spirit. But for that to happen... I've got to have what Wesley had in this very first song. Thousands or hundreds were written. But this is the first one after his conversion. Today it's God's day. He's appealing to you. Let him have everything, no matter what anybody says. And if you should so desire to be connected with an elder or a pastor, take that connect card out and give it to a deacon on the way out. I'm going to ask there to be some deacons at the doors. But no matter where you're at in this journey, I'm calling you to the cross. And I'm calling this faith communion, this body of believers, to a corporate embracing of the faithful and the true witness who says, most of all, I loved you enough to go straight into hell and rescue you. Amen and hallelujah. Let's stand as we sing.